Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the promise that we have celebrated in this song. Lord, that the gospel has reached us with the life-transforming power of Christ's blood to wash away our sins and the judgment they deserved. Them having been absorbed through the lashes, the death, the thorns on the, on the skull that crushed our Savior, the stripes that bore, that tore His back open. We thank You, Christ Jesus, that Your broken body and shed blood is the grace by which we are saved, provided for us satisfaction for our sins, assured us, Lord, that the wrath of God has been satisfied and ensured for us, Father, eternal life in His resurrection. As we turn to the Gospels where these events were recorded in history and for time, I pray, Lord, that we would appreciate, a, that we would appreciate them this morning as all the saints will for all time both in our intellectual understanding and also in the desires of our heart springing forth in worship and the passions of our soul to share with others the good news of Christ Jesus crucified for sinners, risen and ascended and reigning over all his enemies even now as we share this time together. I pray, Lord, that you would bind us together, Lord, around your word. Let it be the core and foundation and center of our fellowship. Let it be the rock and anchor point for our souls. And let it be the refuge in the day of difficulty and trial. And all that we might be strong, Lord, and reassured in this life, no matter what trials or temptations or battles we face, that we have sufficient armor in your scriptures to stand in the day of trial. We thank you, Lord, for these moments again. We pray that we would not take them lightly, but offer ourselves and our understanding as a sacrifice to you as now we turn our attention to your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm thankful for this opportunity and what a great privilege and gift it is for us to open the scriptures together and consider them. I invite you to do that with me this morning by turning in your Bible to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 this morning, a lengthy chapter that begins to record the events immediately leading up to Calvary, the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, and then later the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So the details in this text and in this narrative are significant indeed. And we find them to be so at closer examination in ways perhaps we have not considered before. This happened to me this week as I was studying. Particularly, our section today, the Garden of Gethsemane, experience where Christ is praying, taking on the anguish and burden of sorrow for, about he, what, it, for, for what he is about to embark upon, and then receiving, or and then comparing this passage to another experience and revelation that had occurred back in chapter 16 and 17. So, in the course of today's message, those will be our two primary texts Matthew 26. And then Matthew chapter 16 and 17. What we will do is compare the testimony or the narrative, the account of the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, with the Garden of Gethsemane experience. I want to submit to you this morning that these two accounts are parallel texts. And when we consider them as such, a deeper understanding of both will be apparent. If you have your Bible open to Matthew 26, I invite you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. 
Stand, if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 26, and let us read together. Follow me as I declare verses 30 through 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again for the second time, he went away and prayed. Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Transfiguration and Gethsemane. The Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane. Two significant places where two significant revelations about aspects of the gospel have been revealed in the course of Matthew's account, again in chapter 16 and 17, and here in chapter 26. There is a multifaceted and many-layered, multi-layered richness of the gospel record that begs a trained eye for some of its most brilliant literary treasures. That is to say, the gospels are unique. The way that they record what they record is specific to the genre or the way or method of writing and recording literature that is absolutely unique and special. It is in the Gospels alone that we find this kind of writing, I submit to you, in all the corpus of human literature. There is nothing to compete with a multifaceted, multi-layered, extremely detailed, and thriving with spiritual life, uh, specific chapters and verses that we find in the Gospels. Matthew 26 begins to usher in the events of Calvary directly, while at the same time illustrating prior themes, reinforcing overarching truths in the Gospel, and even retroactively filling in blanks 
from before of contextual understanding. That is to say, the Mount of Transfiguration makes far more sense in light of the Garden of Gethsemane, and the opposite could be said as well. The narrative account in the garden as Jesus begins to agonize under the weight of His atoning work is now unfolding in these verses that we've just read. And these verses draw striking parallels to prior events in the gospel, especially the details surrounding the Mount of Transfiguration account in chapters 16 and 17. Biblical parallels of this type serve multiple purposes simultaneously, all at the same time. If you remember, as we go through this, as we have been going through the Psalms, parallelism or a way of illustrating a point by reiterating and sharing or, or say, stating something again or adding a slightly different shade of meaning using the, these echoes is a common way that the Bible reinforces and emphasizes a point that it is trying to make. When we take these kinds of parallel accounts side by side, they add depth and dimension and understanding and illumination to the text. This is similar in the Gospels, especially as we consider in this case a sort of narrative or story parallelism. These striking parallels of prior events that now are re-emphasized to some degree serve multiple purposes. Among them to emphasize, as we've stated, reiterate, expound, and expand ideas central to the message of Matthew and also crucial to the application of these events as lessons for the believing reader. What are we to take away and to apply, in other words? Behold, saints, as we open the scriptures again this morning, the beauty of what we have before us. And let us seek the Spirit's aid in appreciating their power and their intricacies. To help us do this, I have a heading for you. Let us consider parallels between transfiguration and Gethsemane. And let's consider these under three categories. First of all, confusion. This deals mostly with the response and the interaction of the disciples under these conditions as these events are unfolding before them. Confusion. Secondly, calling. In spite of their woeful misunderstanding, there is a calling that is happening. There's discipleship taking place. Christ Himself is shaping the hearts and the minds and the lives of His followers through these events. Thirdly, occasion. The very events themselves, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, are significant. They are particularly significant in meaningful ways to understand the nature of Christ, His divinity, His work on Calvary, what the gospel is all about, and the foundations, in fact, for our faith. So consider, first of all, confusion this morning primarily looking at the responses of the disciples. There are parallels, again, between transfiguration and Gethsemane as we consider confusion, how the closest followers of Jesus Christ were absolutely bewildered in many cases at this course of events. The closest of Jesus' followers and most informed of students are often, in the case of the record, uh, left in the dark, struggling for clarity. having great difficulty understanding what's going on. Jesus himself prophesied, as we've noted multiple times, his own death, burial, and resurrection in the course of the Gospel of Matthew. Yet at any point when he says, this is about to happen to me, let us turn, go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be crucified, he'll be offered up for sinners, he will rise again on the third day. As the disciples respond to this truth, it seems that no matter how many times he says it, Something doesn't click in their mind. 
It doesn't fall into place. They just don't get it. How could a Messiah suffer and die? How could a victor triumph over sin, death, the grave, disease, as they have seen him do, even the evil spirits flee at his command? How can he retain this kind of authority, yet be defeated by death? How could he be falsely accused and condemned by the powers that be when we've just seen him break bread and feed thousands in the wilderness? How could the man who walked across the seas to rescue us in a storm, demonstrating his power over the elements of nature, fall victim and pray to something like a pagan government or the will of the religious elite who are jealous of his influence over the people? They're struggling for clarity. They don't realize what's going on. And although they're hearing the words their, their master is saying the message, the bigger picture, is missing them almost, it would appear, entirely. In the state of the disciples at this point, it is clear that the message of the gospel happens in spite of them. The message is clear as we read it in spite of the disciples. But listen, this is important. At a certain point later, this would be reversed. That is to say, these, the same men who wrote and record and interpreted the work of Christ didn't understand it to, much degree, to a great degree as it was happening. But later, as the Spirit gave them the ability to put the pieces in place, they were the very ones commissioned to help us understand in the record of the gospel we have today. Why is this the case? Normally, when you read a book by an author, if you look deeply into, you know, the bibliography and his history and his pedigree, what do we see? Well, this person is qualified to write the story because of their personal expertise in the matter. They've mastered this material. They're a great scholar. Therefore, they have the authority. They have credentials, the ability to speak on the subject and to be considered believable. Well, the way that the Bible is recorded is something different entirely, and than this typical way that we digest or appreciate information. Its primary author, of course, is imminently credible. It's the Holy Spirit Himself. But oftentimes, the truth that is conveyed and the story of those who are commissioned to tell it is a miracle in itself that they understood at some point and were able to bring the message on. The Bible does not come to us on the foundation of human ingenuity, human expertise, it wasn't a bunch of experts who designed a religion and gave it to us by way of human invention at all. In fact, as the story of the Gospels unfold, they are running to catch up. The disciples, those closest to, to the Master, to Jesus Christ, those with the uh, inside track, if you will, to understand, they are running to catch up with its significance. By God's grace, they eventually do. But this in itself, this confusion of the disciples is testimony to the divine authorship of our faith, the sovereign intervention of God into history, and even the divine authorship of Scripture itself. If you consider some of the stories of great storms, just as an illustration, you hear some of the strangest things about the power of a tornado. You've probably heard them, as I have, where whole buildings like a, you know, like a trailer or mobile home lifted up off the ground and then maybe in some cases actually set back down again and people live to tell the story. A tornado swirls or, or is, with a swirling wind sweeps through an area and it can leave a wake of destruction that is beyond the imagination as far as destruction per square inch 
no other force of nature can even compare. In this picture of massive power beyond our control and being swept in it, we swept up in it, we have something of an illustration of what the disciples must have felt at this time. They were being caught up like, a, like in a tornado, as if in a tornado, into the story of redemption. It was sweeping it, them up inside of these happenings in a way that they could not deny its power. They were experiencing it firsthand, but they couldn't explain everything about it, and they certainly couldn't lay claim to its source of energy. Things were happening to them in powerful ways that would shape their experience, and God would use it later. But at this point, they are just hanging on for the ride. Let's consider the ride a bit as we compare these two passages, Matthew 16 and 17 and Matthew 26. First of all, although the disciples are somewhat befuddled and confused and conflicted, it is not as if they haven't been brought up to speed with explanation about what is going to happen in the gospel. Turning back to the events and the instruction of Christ that preceded the Mount of Transfiguration and Matthew 16, we find that the event of Christ's glorious revelation to them on the mountain was preceded by prophecy of what He would soon accomplish on Calvary. For instance, in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, as we consider the confusion of the disciples, notice what the reaction that immediately follows. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is strange indeed to the disciples and as his hearers, as he again prophesies of what will happen, but they seem to have difficulty processing. As we turn over to the Garden of Gethsemane, we have a similar introduction to these events in the words of Christ that again are met with a certain confusion in Matthew 26, 30. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And what is the response again? Confusion. They don't get it. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And just hours later, the prophecy is fulfilled. Peter is found denying Christ and all the disciples run for the hills. These sufferings were explained to them. The death and resurrection of Christ was laid out clearly to them. What the disciples don't understand, though, is a truth that had been recorded in the Scriptures long before Christ came on the scene. And these three words, I will strike, is central to the understanding of what is about to take place. This, of course, is a, prophes a prophecy from Zechariah 13.7. But he wasn't the only one who prophesied that there would be a Messiah, a suffering servant who would come and who would be struck. Also, Isaiah or 53 in, a, in the book of Isaiah comes to mind. Do you recall chapter 53, verse 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, speaking of Christ. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. 
He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane that we are about to read uh, in our passage, and it describes in, in fulfilling detail this prophetic word from a centuries prior, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many account, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The disciples thought it wasn't right that their Messiah fall under these powers that be and be, dis, and be killed and falsely accused. They, perhaps they also thought, Peter certainly seemed to fall into this category, that if they could just rally themselves, take up swords, and uh, inspire a zealot movement, they could stand against those who would oppose their Messiah. What they failed to understand was that Calvary, the cross, what Christ was about to do was not first and foremost by the hand of the Pharisee, of Caiaphas, of those who plotted for his death, of Judas who betrayed him, the Roman guards who guarded him and speared him through, the ones who nailed his hands and feet, or Pilate who presided over his trial. No, the striking, the, the, uh, the violence and, and the, the work of death and the, the final blow was by the hand of God the Father Himself. And this understanding of the sovereignty of God in the death of His Son for the satisfaction of His wrath for the sinners who need salvation was key to understanding. Once the disciples realized this later, in the course of their dawning gospel understanding, they became the most powerful apologists. They became the most fearless messengers. They became successful apostles, tireless zealots of a spiritual kind. And they declared with boldness, confidence, clarity, and certainty that it was the will of the Lord prospering in His hand that struck Christ the servant as a propitiatory, that is, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sin of mankind. These two stories, again, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane are parallel. And again, looking a little more closely at the misguided responses of the disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, you remember Christ revealed Himself shining glory, Moses and Elijah are standing next to him. And what is the response? Well, Peter, again, we have the record in verse 3 of chapter 17 of Matthew. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter is interrupted. He's interrupted by a voice from heaven. Heaven's loudspeaker proclaims from glory while he is still speaking. It says, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The message to Peter and the disciples was listen, worship in fear, not be busy about building a tabernacle just now. This was a misguided response. Peter didn't realize the significance of what was happening. 
the closest thing that he thought was a legitimate or was appropriate was to uh, be busy about building a tabernacle. Perhaps he remembered in the wilderness when God's glory was revealed to the people, and there was a place of geographic centrality where the Shekinah of the Lord rested upon the tabernacle and later the temple. And so he thought, well, we should construct a temple here. Little did he understand that Christ himself was the glory of God revealed, and this glory would, trans- would transcend a mere place, and it would soon inhabit them, that they themselves, the disciples. And Christ is the tabernacle, or Christ came and dwelt among us, and we ourselves become his tabernacle. And this was a foreshadow of his glory after he was resurrected and his body is transfigured and changes form. And it shows that he has the power of resurrection. All this was happening. But the misguided response of Peter illustrates how it was, it was lost on him, at least at that moment. This was similar in Matthew 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane again, was it not? As we go back to our text today, we find in verse 33... This response by Peter again. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This after the prophecy that Jesus declared that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Peter digs deep within himself and finds an inner resolve and confidence and says with a tone of boldness, confidence, pride, and certainty, I will never fall away. It was a misguided response. Peter misunderstood his own frailty. He did not have a sober view of his own sin, his own weakness. Later he tried to prove himself, no doubt in defiance to the word of Christ that he would fall away. Peter grabs a sword and seeks to do damage with it later in the text in verse 50 or verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. But the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss as the man sees him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Verse 51, And behold, one of those other gospels tell us this is in fact Peter, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Listen, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The scriptures were being fulfilled before their eyes. Because Peter and company didn't recognize it, they had half a mind to fight against the fulfillment of prior prophecy by taking the circumstances into their own hands preemptively in all maybe their good intentions trying to defend their Messiah. However, in their confusion, their response was misguided. They didn't realize That Christ was going humbly, willingly, submitting himself as a sacrifice, if you will, to the sword of the aggressor. So that when he goes to the cross, 
it satisfies the scriptures that prophesied he would be like one who would not raise up his voice. He would be like one who does not object to his captors, but he will go willingly following the will of the Father to become the sacrifice for our sins. Now Peter is rebuked in both stories for his response. The confusion after the explanation, the misguided response in spite of Jesus preaching the gospel to them and sharing the message of the kingdom. Uh, Now, as we see the events unfolding, these reactions are met with a word of correction and rebuke from Christ. And Matthew 16, 23, we have this. Far be it from you, Lord, first of all, in verse 22, Peter says of Christ, this shall never happen to you. Denying, in fact, the prophecy that Jesus declares that he himself will go to the cross in short order. Verse 23, but he, Christ, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A stiff rebuke, a strong correction comes, and it's shocking indeed as we read, Seemed like Peter just wanted to defend his master. But in so doing, he was actually warring against the will of the Father. In chapter 26, verse 34, Peter responds, as Jesus said to him, or Peter had answered that, no, far be it from him to fall away. They could all run away, but he would never do so. In verse 34, Jesus responds to Peter this way, Truly, I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Again, this response uh, is worthy of a rebuke. Christ rebukes him, as we've read, for pulling out his sword. And later in the same passage, we find that Christ's words came true. In just moments, verse 56 But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So now not only had they betrayed their confusion, but they had dispersed, simply ran away. They simply ran away. Now this reaction of his followers to the events that are going on raises a question for us today. Can we effectively deny Christ in our response, in our attitude, in our actions toward the gospel, can we disassociate ourselves from the Lord without formally uh, renouncing our allegiance? Can we fall into the same trap the disciples did in perhaps a thousand different ways if we are not careful? I think the answer is yes. If we, for instance, fail to bring God's word to bear at points of cultural contention, for fear of mockery, confrontation, misunderstanding, or ostracism, we today are perhaps misguided in our response to the challenges around us, not placing faith in our Messiah, who has ordained a time for His church to go through wilderness, as we spoke of last week, Revelation chapter 12 prophesies, and was modeled for us by saints that went before. God does, as we've seen, His best work oftentimes in the wilderness, shaping the character of his people, humbling them and preparing them for his work through them and revealing himself to them in their great need. Need and supply reveal the glory of God in these wilderness times. How do we embrace 
the valley of the shadow of death, and those challenging times in our life where our witness comes at a high cost, where standing with Christ means standing against most everybody else in our surrounding culture and so on. Do we run away? Do we deny the Lord? Are we tempted to disassociate ourselves, distance ourselves from the point where the battle wages for the testimony of the gospel to be consistently proclaimed no matter the circumstances? You see, we are guilty and susceptible to confusion too, are we not? And misguided responses in the flesh are usually our default position. Peter is rebuked for these things, but it was a gentle rebuke. The word of the Lord came to correct Peter and the compassion of Christ was seen through this time. You see, Christ's followers were being discipled during these moments. They were being prepared for God's work. If you have felt yourself relating to these responses, consider the gentle rebuke of the Holy Spirit. And join once again in your testimony, confession, and your certainty, and your standing with the Lord. Because in the end, it is the only place to stand. Building on this point number two this morning, calling. There are parallels between transfiguration and Gethsemane. One of them is the seemingly halting progress of discipleship. Nevertheless, it is something that is going on, a sanctifying work among God's, uh, among Christ's followers through these events. There's a call that is coming forth at the same time as these uh, happenings are going on. Again, back in Matthew chapter 16, We read in verses 24, this admonition, this instruction, these imperatives. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give and return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His fathers, and of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. So you see, not only does Christ prophesy His own sufferings, being condemned before the elders and chief priests and scribes, killed and raised the third day, but He calls, He calls His disciples to follow Him to that end. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. There is a temptation that the disciples are susceptible to that Christ warns them against in Matthew 26. And that would be the temptation that when the time comes, in part, when the time comes to follow Christ, even though it means death to self, that we do so anyway. That we follow him even when the going gets tough, so to speak. In chapter 26, verse 35, there is a call. He says, or Peter, first of all, perhaps trying to follow Christ's example or Christ's admonition before, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. It's interesting that Peter says he is willing to die with Christ. Yet we see this resolve melting away in light of the fearful circumstances. It takes more than a frame of mind to stand in the day of difficulty. It takes the indwelling of the Spirit. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he's calling the disciples to pray, and he calls three even more specifically, taking Peter, James, 
are Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Later, he tells them what to pray for. He says, the hour is at hand. Or So leaving them again, verse 44, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This uh, admonition that he had given them to watch and pray, they had not listened to. But in verse 41, he had told them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. They had not done so. They had not been watchful. They had not been prayerful. And now they were entering into temptation. And we see in due course that they are not prepared. Nevertheless, there is this call, this calling from the Lord to prayer, to follow. And even through their failings, they are being drawn by the Spirit's work uh, through this time to be disciples of Christ, and He will perfect them through the process. Peter's, in spite of Peter's best intentions, his impetuous resolve, the disciples, and Peter included, especially as a representative apostle or disciple at this time, they failed at the most crucial testing points. This call and follow me. But later... There is a dramatic shift, and the disciples begin to follow Christ even unto death. And we see that, we'll see that in due course in the text. Secondly, under calling, there are kingdom promises that precede both the Garden of Gethsemane and also the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 16, where we have just read, we touch upon it again in verse 27. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In this call to uh, place faith in God's work through these events, there is an aspect of the promises that move beyond what Christ is about to go through and rest in his kingdom being fulfilled through this work later. Again, in Matthew 26, these future promises of a kingdom yet to come uh, come to us at the end of the celebration of Passover. Jesus has said in verse 28, for this drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is calling through these words for a broader perspective, to see the complete arc of redemption. It seems to the disciples that all is lost at these events. They run away in fear. They do not see with the eyes of faith beyond this, no doubt, uh, destruction of their Messiah, conviction by the powers that be and His being overcome by the armies, and by the temple leaders, and so on. But if they had listened to his words, they could have seen beyond this moment, and they could have realized that Christ himself would, through this very work, be ushered into a kingly authority that will rule and reign over every principality and power. And so many of these promises that Christ gives them and calls for them to have faith 
move beyond this moment of his suffering into the kingdom that he will soon receive from the ancient of days when he is ascended. The kingdom is presented to him and he sits down on his throne. Both of these accounts, Transfiguration and Gethsemane, they both share a a post-resurrection promise context. The disciples cannot anticipate any hope, but Jesus himself knows the end, what will happen, God's purposes. There will be resurrection. There will be a kingdom to gain. Finally, under calling, there are a favored three who are singled out in both texts. Again, in Matthew 16, now into 17, we see who gets the special privilege of seeing Jesus glorified on the mountain. 17.1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. James and John, of course, the two sons of Zebedee. John was his brother. And they led them, and led them up a mountain by themselves. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Isn't it interesting that on this occasion, these three favored individuals, at the Mount of Transfiguration, were the only ones who got to see firsthand in their experience this manifest miracle. Isn't it interesting that those same three are the ones who are called forward to a deeper level of communion and prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Again, verse 37, after Jesus had led the disciples into the garden, it says, it says in verse 37, and taking with him Peter, And the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John again, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. There are those in the course of God's sovereign work who have a particular calling to advance the kingdom of God. Among the disciples, these three were, yes, indeed favored. They had a privileged position, an inside track on some information that others of the disciples did not experience in the same way. This happened on more than one occasion, as we see in the text. This was a calling of particular significance. All of the apostles were particularly significant, but even among them, there were a favored few. Other passages, however, go on to highlight particular setbacks in these men as well. And isn't it just like the Bible to provide perspective? Lest we elevate Peter, James, and John to a position, you know, high above other mere, you know, believers. These were saints. We find other passages like this in Matthew 20, verse 20. The mother, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so this is James and John's mom, came up to him with her son to Christ. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And, the, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers that were jealous of this favored position. Isn't it interesting that these two sons of Zebedee are coming face to face with the cup in, this, in the garden and they just fall asleep? Can you, do you, have you earned the right, you feel that you've earned the right to sit at my right hand? And he said, can you bear the cup that I am about to bear? 
And here we see him taking the cup from his father in prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. James and John are with him. They have no idea the significance of the moment. They've already fallen asleep. They are not paying attention. And even though they enjoy a closeness with the Lord, they themselves are really just stupefied and lost and as confused and befuddled as the others on this occasion. Now this again changes, and Peter falls into this category as well. He denies Christ three times. He has proven the fool, you know, at times in the course of his own discipleship. All this to say that the Lord does great things through unlikely vessels. The circumstances will change. These men will become bold proclaimers of the gospel. Fearless apostles who advance the kingdom of God and plant churches and are willing to die for the faith in each of them. Peter, James, and John, they all suffer in faith a martyr's death. And at that point, their calling is demonstrated with much greater faith than it was at this time. Christ's work continued in their own lives, even individually, beyond this point. Final, uh, final point this morning, occasion. We're exploring the parallels between transfiguration and Gethsemane. And uh, as we see this, as we see the, the two occasions, although they're manifestly different in some ways, Christ is glorified and the other he's in anguish, there, there are also many parallels between the two. And these are particularly significant, especially as we consider the occasion, what is going on here. There are milestones that are anticipated in the work of redemption, and two of them are being revealed. The first one, of course, is in uh, Matthew 17 and could be described as resurrection power. In verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. I should back up. Jesus was transformed before them, and his face shone like a sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make you three tents. And you remember his response. What is the significance of this moment, the occasion? Well, it's a milestone that is being anticipated. In other words, these disciples are experiencing the resurrection power of God himself. How do we know this? Well, Moses and Elijah are standing alive next to Christ. They'd been dead for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Moses and Elijah, their resurrected form, standing there personally communicating with Christ. Moses and Elijah also represent the law and the prophets. Moses was chief among the representatives of the law of God. To him was given as the mediator the law at Sinai. So here we have Christ communicating with the revelation that went before by its two major representatives, Moses and Elijah. Elijah representing the prophets, the greatest of them in some ways until John the Baptist. We have Christ himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, talking to the two chief agents of the law and prophets, who by the resurrecting power of the Almighty are standing alive next to him who is transfigured, displaying the glory that he had before he humbled himself and became a man, and the glory to which he would return to that the Carmen Christi speaks of in Philippians 2, and this is happening right now before their eyes. 
Also, this revelation is particularly significant. Moses himself heard from the Lord on a mountain and spoke to the Lord in a personal way that few other human beings ever enjoyed. Elijah the same. He was exiled into the wilderness and heard the still small voice of the Lord. We talked about this last week. He was in the wilderness of Horeb. He was depressed after he had defeated the prophets of Baal, needed to be built up in his holy faith, as it were. He went out into the wilderness. The Lord revealed himself in power, but the voice was not heard until it had quieted down. And that still small voice on the mountain spoke to Elijah. And now here is Christ on the mountain. This is God. This is man. And Moses and Elijah are hearing this same voice again on the mountain. And three are looking on, witnessing this occasion. Peter, James, and John see the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They hear the voice of God communicating to them as he had done to the great saints of old. They see the power of God directly revealed to glorify the Son after his redemptive work was complete. They understand the former glory that the eternal Son had with the Father. They see the perfect communion consummated before them and the power of resurrection demonstrated and the glorified future of Jesus Christ prophetically prefigured before their very eyes. This is what's going on. In Matthew 26, something else is going on. And it seems a stark contrast, does it not? But it is every bit as important. Every bit is supernatural. Every bit is miraculous and powerful. When Christ cries out, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He is contemplating in anguish the bearing of the wrath of God in the destruction of his own flesh, in the suffering that he would bear on Calvary to make satisfaction for the sins of the elect. He cries out, If there is another way, Father, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. If it cannot pass unless I drink it, I will do your will. Anticipating the milestone of Calvary in these events. And again, the same three disciples are witnessing it if they would only stay awake. Notice the disciples' reaction. It is similar again, and we won't touch it specifically, touch on it specifically, but in chapter 17, 6 through 9, they fall down in terror, and Christ tells them to rise. Here they fall down in sleep and lethargy, and he commands them again to rise. He says again twice, first of all, in verse 7, chapter 17, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their, up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. In Matthew 26, verse 45, sleep, of course, had taken over, and Jesus was awaking them, and he says in verse 46, Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In closing this morning, what are some lessons and applications that we can take from the context of these two accounts, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, there are many indeed, but let me just give you a couple briefly. First of all, as we follow the biography of the disciples, it is amazing to note the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. These fearful, shaking in their boots, tentative followers who are bragging about their resolve and then running away just a few moments later, 
in schizophrenic overreaction and emotional fear to what's going on become the forefathers of our faith. They become a mighty army that in the face of untold persecution, nevertheless proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the known world and beyond. After Pentecost, these men turned into a different sort entirely. And praise the Lord, after Pentecost, you and I have the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead in dwelling us, quickening us, as if you have been regenerate. Born again, place your faith in Christ. There is post-confidence, or post-Pentecost, cost, excuse me, confidence and clarity that rushes into the experience of the disciples, and that experience can be ours. Secondly, as we see the term fall away in the original language, the Greek is skandalizo, or skandalizo, from which the root word you'll recognize scandal is similar. Jesus said, all of you will fall away because of me this night. What it means is all of you will be scandalized. All of you will be presented with a stumbling block. I will literally trip you up tonight. What does this mean? Well, if we go back to Matthew 21 through 42, Jesus had already prophesied this very moment. Following a couple parables, he said, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The disciples were about to fall on the stone, if you will. That is to say, in summary, that no one encounters Christ without a confrontation. This serves to illustrate, in here in the text, what Jesus had prophesied before. That when you come to grips with who Christ is, with respect to you, it is always a confrontation. You meet him as a sinner, and you meet him with the message of hell-bent condemnation if you don't repent. And if you fall on that stone in repentance and faith, you become more privileged than the religious elite could ever know at that time upon whom the stone falls and they are crushed into powder. That is to say, there are only two kinds of people, those who are broken upon the stone in repentance and faith, and those upon whom the stone justly crushes in condemnation and judgment. And this is taking place before our eyes. The disciples are being broken of their pride and their self-assurance and their confidence. And they are going to realize in the very work of Christ on Calvary their own salvation as the gospel plays out. And finally, this morning, lessons from the context. These parallels demonstrate two events of equal and mutual magnitude. Again, the glory of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ and the glory of his anguish in the garden of Gethsemane. And the point is this, that unless, that is to say, the glory of transfiguration cannot be understood or appreciated without an understanding and appreciating and an appreciation of the agony of the cross. Salvation is a popular message in and of itself, 
if someone feels they're in danger, everyone wants to be saved. A glory and peace and joy and riches and security and assurance and provision and, and well-being beyond this life. Ah, it's a popular message. Everyone likes that. We all look for peace and joy and the little things that we pursue and the trivialities of this life. And we all pretend that we'll have them forever and we all live as if there is no reckoning, at least in our sin. The glory of transfiguration, though. The glory of the future. A happy ever after, the promise of fulfillment, security in the afterlife, joy forever and full of glory cannot be realized without an understanding and appreciation of the agony of the cross. The reason that Elijah and Moses could join in communion with Christ forever and eternity was because these moments at Gethsemane were soon to take place. The reason the disciples could confess faith in Christ, repent of their own sins, become mighty champions of the gospel was because of these moments in the gospel where Christ was bearing the weight of their own transgressions. There is no glory without agony. There is no heaven without the cross. There is no future without Christ's work of redemption. But because of the work of the gospel... If we are broken upon that stone, as it were, in repentance and faith, we have the promise of transfiguration, if you will, ourselves one day. As Paul writes, that this lowly body sown as grain in this life will not retain all of its distinctives, weary, falling apart, growing old like a vessel, but instead it will sprout anew. And in the next life we will receive our glorious body. We will be exalted with the Lord, as it were, and we will rule and reign with Him and join in His presence forever, like Moses and Elijah, commune with the glorified, forever risen Christ. This is what we have to look forward to because of the work of Christ on Calvary. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for the beauties of Your Scripture, unveiled by the Spirit's use of messages like this, of our own personal study, of those tools that you give us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your illuminating word to understand the great works that you have accomplished. I pray that you would use the reading, the preaching of the word, Lord, to great effect in our lives this week, that we might move from confusion to confidence, Lord, that we might be disciples who realize, Lord, the complete work and the complete message of the gospel, that we, it would make us bold and unshakable even in a day of persecution and affliction. Finally, this day, Lord, if there are any who fellowship among us who have not fallen on that stone, to be broken in repentance and faith, I pray that they would confess their sins and look to Christ as their Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.